You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 55. Today, we're sitting down with award-winning landscape photographer Shane Walls to talk about running a photography business based in print sales, why he works with a highly technical camera setup, how to be prepared to travel at a moment's notice, photography competitions, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Outdoor Photography School Digest, which is the newsletter that I send out on the last Friday of the month that contains a summary of all new OPS content and other photography or outdoor tips, including courses and workshops or other resources that I think will be helpful on your photography journey. I also enjoy featuring a photographer, regardless of whether they are a professional photographer, whose work I think you would enjoy learning about. I share photography or outdoor industry offers or deals that may be of interest as well. I call the OPS Digest your monthly dose of photography information and inspiration. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy reading, you can sign up for free through the link in the show notes. Hello, my friends. Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I appreciate you tuning in and sharing a part of your day with me today. I'm also really excited to introduce you to today's guest, Shane Walls. Shane is a listener of this podcast and recently reached out to me to kindly let me know how much he was enjoying the conversations we were having here. And after I got familiar with him and his work, I invited him to come on the show because I thought you would really enjoy learning about his work and his approach to photography and business. And he definitely shares many valuable perspectives in our conversation today. It was a real pleasure to chat with him. So before I roll the interview, let me give you a brief background on Shane. Shane Walls is a nature photographer based in Laguna Beach, California. He attended the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, which led him into a career as an automotive photographer. After 10 years of automotive photography, Shane turned to his true passion of landscape photography. His landscape images have won numerous awards, including gold medals from the Epson Pano Awards, MML International Photography Awards, and the Professional Photographers of America IPC Awards. He has also been honored with a publication in National Geographic and had work inducted into the Wilding Museum of Art and Nature's permanent art collection to be displayed next to original pieces from Ansel Adams. In 2020, Shane was presented a Master of Photography degree from Professional Photographers of America and continues to exhibit his work throughout the U.S. and internationally. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Shane Walls. Shane, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and chat with us. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's really great to be able to get to know you. So I already gave the listeners your bio in the introduction, and you're actually one of the few guests that we've had on the show so far 
that have had a formal training in photography. And so I'm curious, where did your interest in photography first come from? Um, I've photography's always been in my life. My dad was a strong amateur photographer, and he actually for a while owned and worked at a kind of a photo lab. Oh, nice. So it's always been kind of in the background. But, you know, as a kid, you think what your parents do isn't cool. So you kind of stay away from it. Right. But during high school, I actually injured myself on the sports field. And I was confined to a wheelchair and I got my dad's old camera out. And I couldn't really, I wasn't very mobile. So I just kind of went into the front yard and it was springtime. And I just fell in love with this old camera and film and going up and down the streets, taking pictures of wildflowers. Nice. Went back and did everything I could for my high school. Back then, this is when high school actually had photo classes, dark rooms. And I just spent my whole time just learning about photography. And I was lucky enough to get into Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. And it took off from there. Wow, that's great. So are there any aspects of photography as an art or as a craft, you know, the technical side that you learned at the Brooks Institute that you think you wouldn't have been able to learn if you were a a self-taught photographer? And I know a lot of self-taught photographers wonder, like, should I go to school for this or get some extra certification or something? And, you know, I guess now that you have the experience with that, what's your perspective on that? I was so fortunate. I learned so much. Just in that era, I went to college for early 2000. So it's kind of that time when digital was kind of just becoming subpar with film quality wise. So during my time at Brooks, all the technical assignments we had to do, or I should say got to do, was both digital and film side by side. Oh, wow. So I was, yeah, I was able to learn so much comparing the two together. And it really kind of crafted me for who I wanted to be as a photographer. Because I always, I love the idea of film in the way that you only have, you know, 16, 12, 36 chances to get your image. And I really try to push that towards my digital, even though digital is infinity. It's so nice to come home with only, in my mind, a few images. So you're not spending 10 days, you know, going through thousands of images you shot. Right. So in that aspect, I learned so much. Brooks was a little too technical for me. Looking back, I do enjoy that, though. And I was able to find creativity through travel and things like that. So in what ways did the parallels between film and digital, how did the approach of photography using film as the medium, how, how has that informed how you're approaching your digital photography? Really what it was is we did a lot of medium format or four by five film in Brooks. And I really enjoyed doing the big, large prints. We did our own printing there. We learned that. Nice. And digital at the time couldn't compare because I think back then it's probably about six or seven or eight megapixel cameras were just coming out. Yeah. And it was one of those things where digital was so simple and quick, you could use it for an assignment to get it done. Whereas film, you know, took three or four days for that same assignment, same image to get there. But when you went to print, digital couldn't hold up. So it was that fun idea of me learning to stitch digital images together. To create that same file size as that big, beefy four by five sheet of film. Right. And to this day, I still do that because now, I mean, I love hiking. It's what I'm really passionate about. But if you're hiking in the Sierra Nevadas in the summertime and you have 80 pounds of four by five camera on your back, 
Right. It's not going to be as fun as carrying, you know, 20 pounds with a little digital camera. Right, right. So it was that idea of mixing those together, having the ease of a digital camera, but still somewhat coming out with the quality of a big sheet of four by five film for print. I see. Gotcha. Um, I didn't know if it, you were going to say something like it's, it makes you more selective in the field with how you're composing and that sort of thing so that you're only coming back with a handful of images, even if they're digital. Definitely, that's part of it just as well. Yes. Yeah. So I understand that you you use a, a, a technical camera that's quite unusual, you know, not the norm of what people would think of as, you know, Canon, Nikon, that sort of thing. So can you describe for us what it is that you're working with and, and why? I mean, I think we understand a little bit of why you went that route um, based on your background, but could you fill us in on that? Yeah, it's the technical camera. It's called an Alpa camera, and I use the 12TC. And like you said, it's a technical camera. It's kind of four by five meets medium format in a way. Um, if you ever, if you look on their website, the camera is literally kind of a carbon box. That's all the camera is. It's a handle and a little box. And you put a digital back onto the back of it. And then you put a film lens onto the front of it and they connect together. Huh. And what this gives me, it gives me a small little camera. It was the smallest landscape camera until like Hasselblad just came out with something that's a little bit smaller, but it's not as diverse as this. Because the great thing about this camera is it's small, it's lightweight, but I can go from shooting my digital back to clicks. I can go from horizontal to vertical. And when you're shooting with a panoramic rig like I do, it's a mess to turn it sideways and everything to go you know, horizontal or panoramic, as well as I can take the digital back off this camera and just put a film back on it and get the same shot. So the so digital back is basically the sensor? Yes, it's a phase okay. one sensor. And they have 50 megapixels, 100, 150, depending on what shoot you're doing. But it's just a literally, it's a little box that clicks onto the back. And that's your sensor. I see. And since it's medium format, it's a bigger size. It's two and a quarter full frame. So it's bigger than a DSLR. So that's right. where I'm getting kind of the high res look I'm get going for for these big, large prints that these will become. And the camera, like a 4x5, it really slows me down and makes me look, like you said earlier, focus on the scene. So not so much just with film as you do the same thing. This camera does nothing automatic. I have to do focus, set the f-stop, shutter speed. I have to even cock the shutter itself. It doesn't reset. Every time oh, I take a picture, the shutter will click. I then have a little knob on the front of the lens that'll click back over. Huh. So it really slows me down to enjoy and concentrate on the scene I'm doing. So instead of taking a digital camera and shooting, you know, 30 shots, moving the camera around till I get my angle. I really had to spend the time with the camera and study the scene. And I just love doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So out of curiosity, would this type of setup not be all that conducive to say wildlife where you might want to be on a, like a continuous shutter mode? This is, yeah, this is pretty much just for landscape Yeah, yeah. and they're all prime lenses. So for me to change a lens actually takes about five or six minutes. Wow. So I got to put a bag over it to change out the lens. It's a really, it's pretty much, again, a four by five camera setup. Right. So this is just for your long exposures, sitting as kind of a four by five camera doing sports, wildlife, anything that you need to continuously shoot. 
this camera wouldn't work for. Right. That makes sense. So you're talking about the stitched panoramas. This is both vertical panoramas as well as horizontal panoramas. And is that like um, something that's specific to this type of camera setup or is it your tripod that's allowing you like what how what kind of gear are you using to overlap those frames of exposure? It's more the tripod setup for this. The camera does help because you can switch the back, like I said earlier, back and forth between the two. But I use a nodal ninja. And what that does is it gives you the perfect nodal point, which centers the camera, either the film back or the digital back over the center. So when I shoot, I can take, you know, five or six, seven images while I turn the camera, everything's centered. Okay. And then you just play with the lenses because each lens has a little bit of distortion. I try to stick more to the 70 millimeter and 90 for my panos, mm -hmm. but then I can just sweep through the scene, capture something and in post, everything will line up almost a hundred percent. So it's easier for me to combine the images to create one final I see. piece. Yeah, that makes sense. I had a, uh, somebody contact me and ask me about that question of making panoramas and I don't use a nodal slider or anything like that. And his question was, you know, is there like a cutoff of focal length if you go too wide, now you've got too much distortion and it's just not worth it. Or is there a focal length where you don't even need the nodal aspect and you can kind of just judge it with a normal pan type of head? It, it really depends on how creative you want to be. Because I, to make it easy, I kind of stick to 70 and above. That's when you're not getting the distortion. Mm -hmm. Anything lower than that, you'll get a little bit kind of the wider angle distortion. But I sometimes me and I've seen other photographers use that to their advantage, mm. where for me instance, I would actually use say a 35 on my outer stitches, but then switch to a 70 in the middle, just to really highlight the center of that shot, say, because you know, with the human eye, let's just use half dome for an example, half dome in the distance to the human eye, you concentrate on half dome because it's the most amazing thing seeing this but if you're using a 35 40 whatever half tone can depending on where you are become really small right but you seeing it your mind your brain makes it bigger than it actually is right so sometimes it's kind of fun with this photography to really do what the brain is thinking but make it into a photograph so you can use the 35 and you'll have to do a little bit more overlap because again of the distortion mm -hmm. but you can use that longer lens to capture half dome and it'll stitch together pretty well with the 35 on the outside, making it kind of how your brain really sees it. So it's kind of a fun way, but long answer to your question, 70s kind of that little sweet spot and above where you're not getting the distortion and everything should lay together with just a little bit of overlay. I see. And then are you stitching these together in Photoshop or is there another program that you use for that? I do everything by hand in Photoshop. Okay. Just for that, I try to do a lot of these scenes with movement, either being moving water or wind, because it is easier to stitch that together because, you know, long exposure gives it a blur, right. makes it a little easier to stitch together. But some of the programs I've noticed don't quite do it. And I had a big mistake one time where I didn't catch something until it was blown up to, you know, 10 foot by 20 foot. Oh, goodness. So that, wow. yeah, that was a <laughs> 2000. Yeah, it was a big mistake. So now it's uh, not a big fan of sitting in front of the computer. But for this, I will sit down and meticulously just um, what's it called? We put the layer on and then 
mask off. Then you just yeah. mask off the layer right. just to match. And, you know, sometimes a tree might be a little bent, but then you just mask off a little bit more until it lines up perfectly. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so how many uh, how many frames will make a final stitched panorama typically? Really depends on the scene and what's going on. I've had some that are just two stitches. I've had some that are 24. Wow. And that can be your top, bottom. That wouldn't just be a full panel across. That could be top, bottom, middle, bottom, all that kind of stuff. It really... And going back to Brooks, sometimes, you know, you're looking through a camera and you go, oh, God, I wish I just had another inch on this side to capture, you know, this beautiful tree or whatever. And I always thought, well, you shouldn't be limited to just what that is. This gives me the full aspect of what I want to show. Right. And through stitching, that gives me, it shows the whole scene. And I mean, just, yeah, again, it can be 24 all the way down to two or even just one. And then do you have like a favored aspect ratio that you end up with at the end that you crop the final stitched panorama down to? <laughs> it's got the galleries hate me for this because I give them all weird, crazy sizes. <laughs> yeah. it, I concentrate on the panos. I do like those big, long panos. But it, depending on how it was shot and how it comes out, it could be anything. It could be, I mean, 10 inches by 50 inches. It could be 10 inches by, you know. 12. It really, it all depends on the scene that dictates everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So I heard you mention in, in one of your YouTube videos, I was checking out your YouTube channel and no, no. No, it's all good. It's all good. And uh, you had said that you like to meter scenes before you set up your composition. And I often think of meters as being a tool for exposure rather than for composition. So I'm curious you know, how are you using the information from the meter to inform how you're going to compose the scene? Seeing the scene, I mean, looking at it, you have your idea of what you want. And again, going back to learning on film, using the meter for exposure, I really like to see it because it took me a while to really see shades. And I was really struggle with black and white. The meter, even to this day, with color or black and white, it helps me see different shades and contrast because I can take this meter and see, okay, if I want this exposure, how far can I push or pull the shadow or the highlight? Mm -hmm. And just being more the technical side of it, I can do in my head, okay, if I want that sky, there's nothing really happening in that sky. So let's get that for Photoshop talk. Let's get that to, you know, 245 just a little bit of detail. How can I do that in this scene? And I use the meter to help me do that, where instead of just because, you know, taking a base exposure or letting your camera expose that, mm-hmm. your camera is going to expose for middle gray. It's going to try to get everything into that. Right. Using what's almost kind of a watered down zone system, the meter will then set my point in my head. And with the camera, I'll set that and that will de- kind of showcase my exposure that way. So I'll have blown out sky, but I'll still have, you know, the shadows will still be dark. They won't be muddy. And so that's kind of how I'll set the scene. And if the shadows do go muddy, I'll know I'll have to either crop in or even tilt the camera a different way. So that's how I use that. Do you ever do multiple exposures and blend them? I try to avoid that. Um, I'd rather use the filters. Um, Mm -hmm. My gradient, I have a bunch of Snyder gradient and D filters. Those I probably use every shot, my polarizer, at least almost, yeah, probably every shot. 
but I try to do everything in front of the lens mm-hmm. as much as I can. I mean, even though I am shooting digital, I'll still use, you know, cooling filters, 85Bs, 81As. I'll use warming filters on my black and white. I'll have the red filters on there. I do my best, but if the shot needs it, I will stack uh, exposures. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you mentioned, what was it? Uh, A1E, something like that? Oh, well, oh. like the 81A. That's one of the warming A. filters I it's use. A, oh, it's a warming filter. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with warming and cooling filters, what is the overall effect? Is it that it's, you know, adding a warm tone, sort of like uh, sunglasses that are brown versus gray in tint? Perfect example. Okay. It's exactly that. And if you think about it in Photoshop, um, your sliders, if you want to just, you know, change the Kelvin just a little bit warm, it does the same thing. I just think um, the warming filter on lens, it looks, I think, a little better in the shadows. Mm-hmm. I noticed in Photoshop, um, if you go a little too warm, Photoshop, and this could just be me, I think it tries to keep the shadows a little too blue for my liking. Mm-hmm. Whereas putting a filter on it, it kind of just, and this could just be in my head, but it just kind of gives the idea. It all seems to melt together a little bit better. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of controversy. There are people who are like, I will never use my grad ND ever again. It's useless, yeah. you know, because of digital and other people more like you who are like, no, it, it makes a difference. And yeah, it's so interesting, it, I guess, to each her and his own, you know, oh, the, whatever they p- prefer. It, that's the great thing about photography. There is yeah. no answer to that. It's right. whatever works yeah. best for you. And that's what's fun about it. Um, if someone can figure out a better way of, you know, doing it via exposure or whatever, oh, more power to them. Right. But it's just, for me, it works so much better. And also to avoid being on the computer longer, right. it works better for me to have a filter on there because when I go into it and I'm processing them out, maybe just touch the curves a little bit, but then the image is done, stitch it, and it's off because I don't like having a backlog. When I come back from a trip, I want to get it in. Final images, they're in the folder of done images and we're done with it. Yeah, yeah. So these files, they must be massive. I mean, you're already working with a medium format camera, you know, so those files are already large and you're stitching up to 24 exposures to into one file. How large are these files? <laughs> and uh, how do you work with backing them up and all of that? Well, it is funny, yeah, because a lot of people don't talk about when you move up to a higher megapixel camera, they don't really talk about you need a bigger computer to help with this. Yeah. But yeah, my computer, I mean, I have the high-end MacBook Pro. It still chokes on these because some of these, I mean, the one I'm working on right now, it's, I think it's seven images and it's 12 uh, gigabytes. Wow. And that's just, they haven't been uh, masked off or anything. But they're my, most of my images before I flatten them, this is with layers on them. Mm-hmm. You're looking about 15 to 20 or so gigabytes. And even the top of the line computers, they choke on them a little bit. Yeah. So these must not be your normal Photoshop file. These are the large, when Photoshop saves it, it's not your normal PSD file. It's like a PSB or something, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. They all come out. Yeah. Because once I think this, once it's processed out the 100 megapixel, it comes out, I think the image is like 900 megabytes just once it's processed. Okay. That's as a TIFF. It's not even a Photoshop yet. So let's just say they're a gigabyte each and then you're adding them to each to a, you create your own um, new folder or excuse me, new, um, I guess it is just an image and you white background and you start placing them on it. Yeah. Masking them off. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. You you talked about traveling a lot. So can you tell us a little bit? I know you're in California. 
And, you know, you do a lot of traveling around there, but you're when you look on your website, it looks like you've been all over the world. So what sort of landscapes are you connecting with mostly and what do you enjoy photographing? Um, I mean, if someone wants to send me somewhere, I will go. I really want to see everything that I can, but I really concentrate on the Western United States. Mm -hmm. I just love the diversity. Uh, I mean, right away from I did a book called uh, Miles from Los Angeles. Because I was doing a lot of these shows and people would ask me, you know, oh, did that picture, did you get that in Egypt or something like that? And I was, no, this is in Arizona. You can drive here. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea of how many beautiful places are in, you know, within a drive from Los Angeles. So, I mean, it was just great to, I mean, Death Valley, the lowest place and the highest point in the continental United States are an hour and a half drive from each other. Right. And so I really love, you know, photographing that. And then you just go up maybe six or eight hours and you're in Oregon. It's the most beautiful place with just the lush jungles, the green, a little bit higher. I mean, it's just, there's so much around here. I love shooting here, but again, I will go anywhere. Europe's beautiful. The old castles, you pay for the plane ticket, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have like a, a favorite, uh, a landscape that you're really like, if you could just pick one, would it be something like Death Valley or, you uh, you know, desert landscape or canyon lands or forests? And, you know, what are you naturally drawn to? It's funny. Um, I get that question a lot and it's always kind of the answer is the last place I've been. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I just got back from Hawaii. So Hawaii was the most, it's just the most incredible, beautiful place in the world. Ocean meets, you know, lush jungles. You have their deserts over there on the big island. But I just, it's one of those things that I don't want to pick a place. I kind of want, for lack of a better term, the place to pick me. Because mm -hmm. I want to go to these places and see the beauty of them. And you can go to a lot of these places. I know some photographers who won't go near Death Valley because they don't really think there's enough there. Mm -hmm. There's so much, and um, it was fun. You were talking with um, oh, a few podcasts ago, British Columbia, the mm -hmm. photographer up in British Columbia. And yeah. she was saying, you can spend a lifetime in these little places and only see 1% of it. Right. Karen and Cooper. I love Karen Cooper. Yeah, that yeah. was a great one. Yeah. And it was so fun. Just listen to that and think, yeah, you know, let's, instead of seeing this whole area, which you'll never be able to see, let's pick out these small little points that maybe a lot of people don't experience. And just enjoy it for the day. I mean, whether it be the little animals on the sand of Death Valley or even, you know, kind of even like the dead trees that you, that are not picturesque up in Oregon. And there are not that many of them. But just to see how, you know, how they change. Take your time with just a small little bit and really get to enjoy that part. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you really enjoy traveling and, and uh, exploring these new areas or diving deep into the, your more local landscapes. So are, is your approach to photography more spur of the moment, would you say, or do you plan your outings or your plan your compositions in any way? Uh, everything depends on the weather with me. Okay. Um, I, like you, I have a little Tacoma truck Yeah. and it's always filled, ready to go. And every morning my thing is I'll have my cup of coffee and I'll check the weather report. And if say Yosemite's going to get a snowstorm, I'll pick up, hop in the car, and we'll go to Yosemite. Get the pictures. If it's nothing's really going to happen, maybe we'll go do some beach stuff. But it really 
depends on the weather with me. Well, we fall. I don't want to call myself a storm chaser, but if a big storm's coming through, I want to be there before the storm, during the storm, and after the storm for those mm-hmm. clouds, that chance of lightning, and just to kind of. And it's always fun, especially in Southern California, when you're going to these places and a storm's coming, everyone else is leaving. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of the fun thing. And the only time you're really going to get you semi to yourself now is a big storm's coming and you, you know, roads might be closed. Everyone's getting the heck out of there. Right. I want to be that one that's stuck there and have just the place to myself and be able to enjoy it and get the atmosphere that a storm brings. Yeah. So talking about your Tacoma and you have it all ready to go for any sort of good weather opportunity, how, how is it? What do you mean by ready? Is it just like your camera gear is there or do you have like a whole camping set up so that it's your home base kind of thing? The idea, and it's a little overkill, but I want to be able to leave at pretty much the drop of a hat. Um, so the Tacoma, we have these totes and they live in the truck pretty much all the time. And that's cold weather gear, our tents in there. Um, even in the middle of the summer, we'll have chains in there because you never know. Um, it's set to go. And the only thing not in there all the time is my camera gear, obviously, for obvious reasons. I don't want to leave that part. Right. But the totes in the back have everything we'll need. We'll have water in there, a um, bunch of cliff bars, just food that'll get us. We're set for about four days. Mm-hmm. Just look in the truck ready to go. So that just really helps if I'm doing another shoot somewhere and then, you know, you get a weather warning, there's going to be a beautiful storm coming through um, Joshua tree. I can then, you know, get home and just head right to Joshua tree. Cause again, that's when I think the best photography is there and to kind of push myself to be a little bit different. Everyone now has a phone or a decent camera to get these shots this is just that little extra thing to be a professional to get those shots that others aren't ready or ready to mm-hmm. capture. That's just kind of the idea. And this is just a little way to help that to get to those spots right. that maybe other people wouldn't be prepared to or want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And when you say we, is that is that family or do you have like a camera crew that's going with you? Sometimes I have an assistant go. Uh, my girlfriend really tries to come with me as much as she can. And I just, I always want to use the word we because I couldn't have never done this by myself. So we kind of incorporate my family, everyone I work with, girlfriend, because photography aside, they're always, I don't want to say background, but they're always there. And with what they've done and, you know, how they support, it's always a we because without them, I wouldn't be here. So yeah. I always try to use the way we because they might not be taking the picture. Yeah. But if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be there either taking the picture. So, right, right. Well, that's great. It's good to have that support. Um, and when you're, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely, yeah, when you're creating your YouTube videos uh, and you're out in the field, are you doing that solo, or do you have somebody helping you with the filming with that? A summer solo. Uh, some we have, you know, I'll have an assistant come with me, or my girlfriend will fill it. Um, film. It really all depends on just scheduling and again the weather. If they can take off, because it's, sometimes it's hard just to leave at a drop of a dime, right? To go do this, but I'm really most of them. I'll be the first to admit I'm kind of tough to travel with because as a photographer, if the storm's going to happen, you know, we're going to sit there for 12 hours and get every little bit of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we're in a beautiful place, you know, not everyone wants to sit there and just (laughs) see the same sand dune or whatever for 12 hours. So most of this is going to be kind of my own thing. And I'm really going to try. You'll see more, a lot more YouTube videos coming out here soon. 
it's just going to be me and a video camera. It's going to be more of setting up the camera and the camera won't be moving, but I'll do all my photography because I'm not the best multitasker. Mm-hmm. So I'll kind of explain later to the camera what I'm doing, but the camera will capture the scene as I'm capturing it as a photograph. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I I had a YouTube. I mean, I still have a YouTube channel, but I haven't been active on it for about a year. And um, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. And and I was was doing it all by myself, too. And so, you know, trying to it, it is two sides of the brain. It feels like I, I know it's not, but it feels that way when on one hand you're thinking about exploring nature, connecting with nature, trying to figure out, you know, where is the composition going to be? What, what, what's drawing me in and sort of having that frame of mind versus I'm going to create something that's educational or entertaining or interesting in some way. So what's the story that I need to tell for that? And what angles do I need to have? And, you know, is my microphone working right now? You know, is it catching the wind or, you know, there's like so many things to think about. A hundred percent. And I give so much credit to the people who can do that because, yeah, again, going through and being able to think two different ways and catching a photograph is hard enough. But like right. you said, catching a good video is hard enough, too. And to combine them, especially yeah, if the wind's blowing, it's, it's so tough to do. And I'll keep working at it until hopefully we get something, something yeah. decent. <laughs> what are your goals with the YouTube channel? Is it, is it basically uh, like a way of marketing your work, do you think? It's partly that. It's also, it's kind of, I want to always kind of bring awareness to, you know, we need to really protect these areas and there's good ways of doing things and bad ways. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of also to show the life of a traveling photographer. I really kind of want to put that out there to sell the work, but also to, yeah, again, just to do things the right way. Cause I know there's been a few, I haven't seen too many videos, but there's been some photography videos on there where there's tramping through the grass. They're going off trail where they shouldn't be. Right. This is just kind of a way just to get my thoughts across in a little bit. I'm mm-hmm. not, I can't really write blogs. I can't do that. This is more of a visual way to get my thoughts, my opinions out there to capturing a good photograph how it can be done correctly and really just kind of help and connect with other photographers. Cause that's kind of my big weakness as a photographer is I don't, and I'm really excited for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't really communicate enough with other photographers and talk to other photographers. So this was kind of my way to kind of get that together and start a group, not start a group, but be more in the, uh, for lack of a better term, be more in the group yeah. of photographers. Yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah. That's one reason why I started this podcast was to start to connect with other photographers and, you know, hopefully make some new friends and that sort of thing. Because it can be really isolating for, for better or worse. You know, I, I prefer to do photography by myself. That's my my happy place. But that means that I'm not connecting with other photographers in a more fulfilling way, not just on Instagram. And that's one way, but that's not a way of forming a deeper relationship with people. And so, yeah, I totally get it. Oh, it's a great idea too. Yeah, because I think um, spending, because I always thought, okay, I don't want to really look at other artwork because I don't want to emulate it or I don't want to copy it in any way. I had that problem at school where we always would have, you know, Edward Weston or something and we'd have to emulate him. And I found that leaking a little too much into my personal work. Mm -hmm. And I made the mistake of saying, okay, I'm not going to follow any photographers because I want my own stuff to be my own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's 
been 10, 15 years since I've been out of school and I'm finally starting to realize that was a big mistake. I got to start connecting with photographers. I got to learn more from others to really kind of either change my game or up my game because mm-hmm. it's been too long. I've isolated myself too long. It's time to really start seeing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's because I've heard people have that perspective as well of like, okay, I'm going to you know, not study other people's photography because I don't want to influence my own. Mm-hmm. And and yet it's hard to learn things in isolation without studying other people's work, you know, especially people whose work you admire to try to figure out, well, what is it that I like about this? And is that a, something that I can incorporate, not copy, but incorporate into my own work, you know? Oh, um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I had such a hard time doing that. And now it's the time to really learn and incorporate that for a better way. Yeah. Um, what is your YouTube channel since we're talking about it? You can plug it right here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's just uh, Shane Walls. And you'll see on the podcast, Shane is spelled C-H-E-Y-N-E. But check that out. We have a lot of stuff on the truck and more is coming. But there's some kind of behind the scenes of me capturing my photographs. Great. And you'll see this camera and how it is used. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely excited to see more of that. So, so keep it up. (laughs) No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, back to the Tacoma for a moment, you know, you, you do some off-roading with it and, and camping in it as far as I understand. And um, so do you have any advice for, or lessons learned for photographers who are interested in doing some more either backcountry or car camping or, or off-roading in order to get access to some places? Are there any sort of uh, general things that you should keep in mind? Um, always <laughs> last thing you do before you go off-roading, fill up with gas, mm-hmm. the simple stuff. Yeah. But it's really, if you're going out for a week, pack for two weeks mm. and always okay. pack. It doesn't matter if it's the middle of summertime, always pack your winter gear. We've been talking a lot about the desert here. Even in the summertime, it could be a hundred degrees out there, but winter, or excuse me, but even at night, it drops down to 20 degrees. Wow. So it's, I always kind of take the idea, and I've made this mistake a few times, for not overpacking. And when you have a bigger vehicle, we put racks on top just to have it. We might not even open the rack or the containers on top, but just to have over double the stuff you think you need. And that goes for camera gear as well as jackets. My best advice would be overpack. Yeah. Um, You find out you're underprepared very quickly. Yeah. And then it's a bad situation. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And when yeah. you're out in the middle of nowhere, it's kind of tough. Yeah. And really take care of your vehicle. That's another good one. Right. Yeah. And so are you, do you have like a satellite communication device or something like that when you're out? Like say you did get broken down, how would you get help? Yeah. The, we just have the little, um, oh God, who does? I think it is Garmin. Just a little emergency one. Yeah. And I think it's like a little $400 thing you can get it on Amazon. But that's just that's the only thing we do have. The navigation in the Tacoma has been pretty good. So I've been using that. Mm-hmm. And the off trails with the phone has actually worked pretty well, even though you don't have internet connection. But the little Garmin's are emergency. Yeah. If I were to break down, you can click that and you'll be rescued. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunate we haven't run into that too much. Not but the Garmin just as a backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I haven't done any off-roading in my Tacoma, but mm-hmm. I did get a, a cap for it last year so that I can start oh. doing some car camping. So I'm excited about that. I built a little platform that I can easily take in and out. It like breaks down real easy and goes back in and this way I can store things underneath it. So yeah, that, I'm excited. 
that will change your life sleeping in the back of that thing. Yeah. It's, it's warm. It's nice. You're sheltered in it's yeah, it's, you'll enjoy that a lot. Do you, how, I mean, I don't know how tall you are, but do you find it kind of tight? It is tight. Um, I'm 5'10", so I can't sleep straight up. I have to sleep yeah. at an angle. Yeah. But at an angle, it's it's fine. I mean, I wouldn't want to live out of it, so, per se. But at an angle, um, it works out. But I have to have pretty much the back completely empty Yeah. for me to be able to sleep in it. But it's so nice to be able to, you know, after a long day of hiking or whatever, just crawl in the back of that thing, close the door, yeah. lock it, and go to bed and be safe. Right. Yeah. yeah How about um, you? Are you? I'm five two, so I'm I'm short, <laughs> but I have a I have a short bed Tacoma, so it's like five foot five in length, I think. Yeah, I have the same one. Yeah, so yeah, so I I I've practiced. I haven't slept in it overnight yet, but I have you know set my gear up in there to see how comfortable it would be. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's it's a nice little oasis away from home, and yeah, yeah, and to be able to do back. those early morning or late evening outings, it really helps to have the ability oh, to be on location. Yeah, be able to get to the spot instead of hiking, you know, three or four hours for the sunrise. It's kind of nice sometimes if you're lucky to be able to park right there yeah. and just stumble out the back of your um, sleeping area and take the shots. Right, right. It helps on those long trips. Right. Yeah, exactly. So do you have any like fun road stories or, or travel stories that you could share? Oh, geez. Oh, man. God, where to start? Oh, that caught me off guard. I'm trying to think. There's some great stories. Um Coming into Yosemite, we've been stuck in there a few times just because of the snow, which has been fun. Um, Alabama Hills, we've gone through there. Um, it got washed out one time, so we were stuck there. And thank goodness for the Tacoma. We were able to put in four-wheel drive and actually get through the mud. Oh, that's good. Um, I guess a lot of my stories, I was fortunate um, more kind of earlier before I was worked for Vic Huber as his camera assistant. And it kind of gave me the travel bug. He took me to, God, at least 45 states. And my first job with him was just driving the grip truck with all our gear in it. So just those long drives made me kind of fall in love with it. And the Tacoma has kind of taken that place of that grip truck. And I wish I had some better stories for you. They're more... Well, a great commercial for Toyota. They're so reliable and <laughs> bulletproof that we haven't had too many issues. I have a 2018, so it's not, I think we've had 100,000 miles on it. So it's still got a long way to go. But yeah, yeah, it's mostly just the snow. Oh, actually here, just thought of one. Sedona, we were in Sedona for a crazy storm and it wasn't supposed to be all that great. But it's rain turned to sleet, turned to snow. And before we knew it, there was, I think, six inches of snow. And all the roads closed. Oh, man. Couldn't get anywhere. And Sedona, a lot of the places, they're not really built for that. So everyone has two-wheel drive. Right. And then we had to, there was a place we had to be. And the guys were saying, you know, don't do it. Don't do it. Close. And then I pull up with the Tacoma. And they look at it. And oh, those are the tires that came with it? Well, yeah, that's everything's legit on it. I'll see if you can do it. Went right up. No problems. And it was... Another another commercial for Toyota. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to get a shot. So we'll end with that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first truck I've owned. Before that, I had a little Subaru Crosstrek, but then we ended up with these two cows in our lives, which is a whole other story. But we had <laughs> these two pet cows. And so I was like packing my little Subaru full of hay bales. 
and it was just getting really impractical. So finally, I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to try having a truck and seeing what that would be like and and got that Tacoma and I absolutely love it. And I'm like, how did I ever live without a truck before this? <laughs> you know, well, we're exactly the same. I had the Crosstrek too before I got the Tacoma. Did you? <laughs> That's yeah. too funny. And it was the same kind of thing. I need a little bit more space. And yeah, now you look at it. How did I, especially as a photographer, right? how did I live without a truck? Because everything's there. The first aid kit, everything you just put in that truck and leave it. And yeah. then you're ready to go. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so shifting gears a little bit. So you, you have won more photography awards than any photographer that I've had the privilege to meet so far, which is amazing. So I'm curious with your extensive experience with competitions and stuff. Do you ever find that competitions can influence trends in photography by rewarding a certain aesthetic? And if so, then how do we get recognition for our work when we're trying to remain you know, true to our own creative vision while also wanting to win an award or sell a print or something like that? Well, put it out there first. I probably won more awards because, or most awards because I've entered so many competitions. So it's not just the work itself, it's just entering all these competitions. But going into it, it's actually really tough to how it's set in the trends. Every award show is so 100% different. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that, I mean, because I've had some that, I mean, we'll take the Yosemite Valley piece that they want to look on my website. That has won, you know, the top awards. That's how I met Alistair mm-hmm. um, ben. from your other podcast yeah. Yeah, at the MML. That has won first place at a ton. But then in other shows, it didn't even get past, um, you know, the first jury. Wow. So you never know. And that's just part of it. If you're entering these shows, never take it personally. Enter a ton of work. Sometimes it'll win. Same image. Sometimes it'll lose. Yeah. But and that's. Everyone's so different. I don't really think you can set um, either trends to it or even take it as a criticism on your work or even take it as, you know, oh, your work is really good. Everything has to be taken with a grain of salt with those things because every juror will see it differently. Yeah. And it's just the way that entering so many, you're bound, if, if you have a decent image, you're bound to win sooner or later. It's just taking the time to get it out there enter as many compositions as you can. But as for, you know, critiquing yourself, I in no way take any critiques from this, good or bad, the competition, because everyone's so different. Everyone's looking for a different thing. And a lot of these shows, if you enter it wrong, like you think it's a fine art shot, the judges might not see it as a fine art shot. It might be the best seascape they've ever seen. But since it's in the fine art, the landscape category, you lose points for that. Hmm. And so there's so many different variables that are going in there. It's, I really, you can't take it as a critique on your work, I don't think. Yeah. Maybe if you're entering, you know, a thousand images and nothing's happening, maybe you got to kind of look at yourself, look at your work, change it a little bit. But as for, it's more just, um, I just, it's more as a way to, I mean, it's nice, very nice to be recognized. Yeah. But also for advertising to have the awards to beef up your portfolio, that's kind of the main reason for those. Right. I mean, there's a little bit of prize money in it too, but it's really kind of a shot in the dark. A lot of these awards, I think. Yeah. So would you encourage photographers to enter competitions then if they want to get more recognition of their work and that sort of thing? 100%. 100%. Yeah. That looks great on your resume. Don't take it personally if you don't win anything, but yeah, great on your resume. And sometimes you get lucky. 
So I would definitely recommend entering as many as you can. And a lot, I mean, do the research. Don't just, you know, if you get one in your email, enter the so-and-so awards. Make sure they're somewhat legit. Do a little bit of research on it. Yeah. But, and they're about $25 to $30. Most of kind of the legit ones. Some go up to a lot more than that. But if it's a little, I totally recommend everyone entering as many as they can. Because even one award looks great on a resume. Right. Yeah. I've only really entered one or two competitions in the past and and I have not won. So I can't say that I'm an award-winning photographer, you know, and so when I give a talk at a camera club or something like that and they'll say like, "So, have you gotten any awards, you know, that we should talk about in your intro?" and I'm always like, "No. <laughs> not yet." But it would it would be so nice, right? It would be so nice to be able to say that. It does kind of put this little bow on on the top, you know. Well, and definitely and your work is definitely merits awards. Like you said though, you haven't entered any. Right. So, yeah. and one award makes you an award-winning photographer. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's really I think a little too much emphasis is put on awards like we talked about earlier. Yeah. From both sides, the photographer side and the public side. But it is, again, it's nice to, a resume is a resume. It's nice to have as much as you can on there, especially to if it if everything's done online now. I mean, I, I prefer the print competitions where you actually have to print your own work and send it in. Mm-hmm. But there are a million other ones that you just digital file, you know, 20,000 pixels long end and then send it in and you're done. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll try to enter a few more this year. <laughs> I think you definitely should. You, yeah. you're, like again, your work merits. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, so you've been running your photography business for about ten years or more now, and it seems like for landscape and nature photographers, there are, I, I think, three main categories of how to generate revenue in a business, and that would be uh, print sales, education through like workshops and that sort of thing, or client or commercial work. And it seems like you've decided to pretty much go down the print sale route. And so I was wondering if you could tell us about your decision to focus on selling prints and opening your gallery in Laguna Beach and, you know, some pros and cons to having a photography business as your primary source of income. Um, Print sales. Yes, it was the idea. Back to Brooks, I fell in love with printing and I felt that was a big part of the art form in photography to take my piece or take my image and then print it myself. And the idea behind this was doing a lot of starting out. I did a lot of shows in Laguna beach and Laguna beach. If your listeners aren't familiar, it's a very artsy town. They're known for their arts. They have festivals for their arts and it was a good spot for me to be, but I really enjoyed getting my work out there and printing everything big. I had a lot of fun with that. So when I opened my studio, I wanted to make sure I had a place to not my home that was just for my art. I can print, I can work, I can do everything out of there. And then it just became printing, having thing. It's I don't want to it took kind of the fantasy away from being a photographer because it came a job too. Right. Yeah. And that's the one thing I would hesitate for people who say they want to become a professional photographer, they want to open their gallery. It's one of those sidesteps that you gotta. You might get a little bit more than you wish for on this. Just in the way that I still love photography, I wouldn't do anything else. But when you're sitting as a business and you're getting tax information in, how much did you sell? It's kind of... I still couldn't see myself doing anything else. 
but it just became one of those things. It became a business. But then that led me to doing other things. Like it got me the car photography stuff I would never have done because it's kind of a not to be over dramatic, but it became one of those things where the hungry wolf runs faster kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it put a stress on me that I feel I do a little bit better when I'm pushed. Mm-hmm. And the being a photographer, having the business now, it pushed me a little bit more because now all of a sudden, if I don't sell artwork, I don't eat. Right. So it did grow my photography in the way that, okay, we made a pretty good money this, but oh, rent's coming up. We got to sell something. And that made me kind of go out of my comfort zone to either maybe photograph something I wouldn't photograph before, mm-hmm. you know, doing, sitting down with a tax guy thinking, oh, I can save money on this. So it just really, and then building it from there became, ooh, again, I'm answering a long answer to a short question. Oh, no, it's good. Yeah. And then it just kind of created more of the photography. And as it built, it be, I became more comfortable with it and it made me a better photographer in the long run. Yeah. Because now I'm really connecting with people and knowing what wants to sell. It might not be exactly what I want to shoot. Mm-hmm. But people have an emotional connection to what they have witnessed. Right. So I'm sure you've seen online Mesa Arch in Canyonlands. Yeah. There's just a line of 30,000 people in the morning to get that. I mean, it's a beautiful site, one of those beautiful sites you've ever seen. But I had people asking me, you know, why haven't you shot that shot? And I explained, well, there's so many people, but I would buy that if you had it. And then you start thinking... Okay, you know, I love going off in the middle of nowhere and taking photographs, but if they want something that they can relate to, mm-hmm. let's change that. And I started traveling to places I've never been before, a little bit more crowded, but to get that shot that they can relate with, and then sales went from there. Yeah. So it, it's it's a definitely a fun adventure. I wouldn't change a thing looking back at it now, but it does change your idea of what you want to do as a photographer, but it will grow. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, you know, when when you opened up your gallery and you started to display your images and sell your prints, that getting that feedback of what would sell and what wouldn't sell, um, it is hard then when you have the opportunity to go out and photograph, how do you decide what to photograph? The the stuff that you're drawn to that may not sell or the stuff that sells? And I guess you have to kind of find that balance. You find that median and everything becomes, you know, an award on its own. If you get that amazing shot, which is funny, my favorite shots usually don't sell well. Yeah. Uh, but that, in a way, that that fills me. I, I like doing that stuff. But then also you have that other type of pride going, oh, I got this great shot that everyone's going to relate to. This is going to be a great seller. Yeah. It's a different type of satisfaction, but it's good either way. And then, you know, if the business is doing well, you're excited. And yeah. to be able to do two different things is one of those... It's just kind of one of those ideas of kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde, so to speak. It all comes back to one person in a way, but you can do two totally different things to create, to meet at the same goal. And I really kind of, in a way, didn't think I would enjoy that. Right. But it's, once again, shown me places I never would have thought about doing or trying things I never would have thought of. And it's grown me as a photographer. Right. Right. Yeah. That's cool your passion for photography comes through. And so, you know, it's not like it, oh, the, the business has not killed your passion at all, which is great. It, it hasn't killed it. I was a little dark there, but it is, it definitely changes you for the better. And it does give you, it's like every business, you go through your hard times and 
We still haven't figured it out 100%. I mean, we'll do just, I mean, numbers wise, we'll do one month where we do $40,000 kind of thing. But then the very next month, we'll do 200 bucks. Wow. Yeah. So that just kind of leads you and that gives you another, I don't want to, I always kind of want to look as, you know, a problem is actually an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that leads to an opportunity. Well, what else can we do? Oh, you know what? I used to do car photography. Aston Martin needs a picture of their car right now. Let's do that something I wouldn't have done otherwise. So it right. kind of pushes you to different directions and you become that person. The business becomes your baby. What can I do to make this flourish? And then you flourish as well. Right, right. That makes sense. So how are, how are you finding new collectors for your artwork? And we do a lot of shows. It's really, the gallery is really based in a way we try to keep we're in Laguna Beach, but we're not on the main street. Our business plan is we want to keep o- uh, overhead very low because I'd rather spend that money on creating the best product possible and selfishly traveling more. Mm-hmm. So the idea of what we're trying to do is we're trying to get out online. We're really trying to work with the YouTube channel, social media, which we haven't, we're not there yet. We're getting better doing shows. But the idea is to get our name out there, see us there. But then be able to come to the gallery because, you know, as well, your work doesn't look nearly as good on the computer screen as it does in person. Right. So our main goal is to get them to the gallery. It's a quaint little gallery. They can sit. I I meet with all the clients myself. Nice. And I can tell them the stories. I can talk about, oh, we had to do this. You know, this is how we got this image. We can talk about the printing process. Really connect with them because that I don't want to. you really want to connect with the clients, at least I do. Yeah. And become kind of friends with them because my some of my greatest friends were clients first, collectors first. And then we just built a rapport because if they're collecting your work, they have kind of similar ideas. They want to be out in nature. They want to be doing this stuff. So you create this rapport with these people and they become friends as well as collectors. Right. So it's kind of that idea of getting them to the gallery, really talking about it having the one-on-one people love to meet the artist, the photographer and just create that relationship that I think's kind of been lost with all this digital idea of, you know, Oh, you buy a print and it's tough too, to see online. You're going to spend $10,000 on a print. You don't even see it till it arrives at your home. Right. That's pretty tough. I think it's a little bit better to oh see it online. Oh, that would look great in this wall, but let's go see it in person kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So we haven't really talked about the printing process on the podcast yet. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what your approach is briefly from going from file to print. So whether that's if you're working with a print lab or if you're printing something yourself, what are some of the considerations and decisions that you're making to go from that digital file to the final print? Uh, The big thing is it's not going to look like what's on the screen. So it's a big process of taking your file Instead of looking at the screen, you look at the numbers. Okay. More the technical side. You look at the whites, you look at the darks, and the numbers will tell you what your print's going to look like. And for how I do it, I used to print all my own stuff, but it just got too overwhelming. So now if a collector wants a personal print from me, they just have to request it. Otherwise, I go through a lab. Mm-hmm. But how it works for me is the lab, I do all my artist proofs. Myself. So I'll print out on my use the Epson 9000 series. I'll print it out and then give it to the lab. Mm-hmm. They'll then match that print. Gotcha. So if anyone, and we only do 18 of each one. 
Okay. So if someone wants it, they need it quick, I do it to the lab. But then we'll discuss, we offer three types of paper. We have the acrylic paper, the fine art rag, and we're actually just started doing metal, which is kind of interesting. And we'll take that file, we'll flatten it, we make it a TIFF file, never print a Photoshop file. Mm-hmm. TIFF file, and it depends if you're doing Canon, Epson, you'll go through their software. And okay. then if you have the numbers, because the computer talks to the computer, the computer doesn't see the colors, it sees the numbers. Right, okay. So that's where you take the numbers. And again, um, people listening, if you ever want more information, feel free to email me. I'll be very open about this stuff because there's a lot more technical. We'd be on this for three hours yeah. really getting the nitty gritty. <laughs> But once the numbers match and they're the computer's seeing, you know, 118 here and the printer seeing 118, they'll match. And there's a few ways of doing that. And then we print it out. Each paper is different, but it's really kind of a trial and error. And this is where the one time we use photo or the few times we use Photoshop, you have to do the contrast and exposure a little bit just to get the print. Mm-hmm. But we just take our screen almost down to the darkest, match the numbers and run it through Epson, Canon, whatever you're doing. And we'll print it out that way. I see. And so when you're talking about running it through their programs, is this, this is like a thing that you would install on your computer and you would print directly that way? Um, There's different ways you can print it through Photoshop. I don't. But if you buy, let's just say, I don't know if it's a real thing, but let's just say you got the Epson P12 printer. I don't think that's a real printer, but anyway, for the example, it'll come with the software for that printer. Oh, I see. Okay. So you then... When you open it up, it'll be to see if you want, you know, 300 picks or uh, DPI or whatever. That's what I was talking about with matching. You have to make sure all those 300 DPI matches the 300 DPI from Photoshop. So you kind of almost, see. okay. you set it up in Photoshop, condense it down, flatten it, do a TIFF. And then they take that TIFF and drag it into the Epson or Canon. Then you make sure all those numbers match again, the 300 to just so they're talking together as much as possible. I see what you're saying. Okay, gotcha. Uh, well, thank you for it's that. It's very complex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. Uh, well, maybe we'll do an episode at some point, like a tidbit Tuesday on printing or something. You can come on. And oh yeah, let me know. Yeah, because you you can just sit down for hours and there's oh yeah, it's 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 kind of a mess, but it is a lot of fun too to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you mentioned your limited edition prints, and I noticed on your website. You also have open collection available. And so how do you decide what's going to be a limited edition uh, or open collection? And, you know, why 18? And and how did you come to that conclusion about limited prints? Um, The start off with the last part is 18. I want to, again, push myself to I want stuff to sell out. I want to have to go and get another image to replace an old image. And 18, there's no real rhyme or reason. It seemed like a lot of people are doing 20 and 18, you know, is just eight is a special number in a lot of cultures, infinity, and you turn it sideways, infinity, a focus on the camera. Yeah. So that was 18. But as the way of picking limited to open, it's my personal preference, 100%. Mm-hmm. If I... Hmm. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. It's if I really like this image and I don't want to sell hundreds of thousands of them, I'll just say, okay, this is going to be our limited edition series. They're usually in my mind, they're more the, those are the stronger images usually. Mm-hmm. And they were the harder to get. Open edition, and this is kind of a good little business segue to for multiple price points. Right. Not everyone coming in 
can spend $10,000 on a photograph. Right. So what we do is the limited editions are kind of our top tier. There's only 18 of them. Open editions are tier below. They're still the same quality, same camera, same printing. It's just there could be 10 out there. There can be 10,000 out there. Mm-hmm. There's no, it's an open edition. You can buy as many as you want. And then we have the book to finish it out at the lower price point. But it was just more of a, even for more of the open editions, if they're easier to print, I might pick open edition. If it's more, maybe not my favorite location, but people will relate to it more and I know it's going to sell well. I want it to be out there. So that'll be open edition because more people can buy it and it's not going to be sold out. But yeah, just kind of a rambling part. There's no real rhyme or reason. Yeah. No, I was just curious. Yeah. And I read that you actually destroy the files of your limited editions once they sell out. Yes. Once we sell 18, we have the two artist proof. I usually keep an artist proof for myself, Mm -hmm. but we destroy if it's shot on film because most of our black and whites are still shot on film. Mm -hmm. We destroy the film. We destroy the high-end, high-res digital file. We'll keep a little small JPEG just for the website and for competitions. Right. But just so I'm not tempted, who knows what's going to happen in 20 years. I don't want to be one of those photographers that, oh, this limited edition is now reopened. Right. I don't want to tempt myself. So we're just deleting, getting rid of it. Is that hard? It's, yeah. I've had a few second thoughts every once in a while, but it it feels good after a while because- yeah. That was your photograph. That was what you concentrated on. It did a great job. It had a great run. It's It did well. It, so we sold 18 of these prints. I'm excited. I'm proud of that. It's now time to move on to yeah. another one. So yeah. that is it's completely destroyed except for just a small JPEG. Yeah, so you get total closure at that point. Total closure. And it kind of hypes me or pushes me to go get another image. Right. Because if it's, say, I mean, our Maroon Bells one, it's nearly sold out, Elysium. And I love that image so much, but now it's, we're probably gonna have to destroy that soon. So I now have to go get another one right. to match that image. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting built in system that you have there to keep you going and motivated and driven to go out and get some more, you know, you, 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 you can't get complacent in that system. Exactly. And it's, yeah, it is a push. Cause I found out in my 39 years of being on this planet, I got to push myself. I find myself getting a little too comfortable sometimes. And this is just a few ways of how we built the business to push me to really be a little uncomfortable. And that's when I get my best work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for for sharing all that. So before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Let's do it. All right. So what is your favorite light to photograph? Whew. Let's, 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 Let's say the stormy light, if that counts. Sure. Yeah. Stormy lights. Love my sunrises, but that stormy light where the clouds are just covering the sun. You get those little God rays coming through. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is one piece of outdoor gear that you can't live without? Oh, that's not photography gear? Yeah. I would actually say a really, really good watch. Oh, interesting. Any recommendations? Really good. I mean, I just, the watch in a way, I like it that it's, it's a tool for your time because with my techno camera, I have to time everything on my watch. Mm. Oh, okay. Cause your, your shutter speed is timed. Exactly. So everything's done on the watch. I see. It's nice. And then it keeps, you know, obviously know when sunrise and sunset is. Right. So I would, yeah, I would say watch. Okay, cool. We haven't had that one before. So that's great. <laughs> um, with all your time that you spend in the backcountry, what's your favorite camp meal? Ooh. Oh, it's going to be so disappointing, but I really enjoy oatmeal. 
Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> oh, oatmeal, oatmeal and bananas. I, every time I eat it, I feel like I'm about to start an adventure because that's what we always have out there. And it's easy to store. And yeah, yeah so oatmeal. Excellent. Little um, granola helps. Yeah, yeah. Um, center column or no center column? Oh, you know, I am full center column just because the for the weight. I love to hang my backpack on the center column and that just weights down the camera. Yeah. Um, what is your most recommended book on photography or creativity? Oh, actually not quite photography. I love those like how to stay alive in the woods kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause those I relate so much to my photography and the way reading those, you feel how, how to survive in nature. It actually opens my eyes to how to photograph nature. Oh, that's excellent. So I would recommend those. Some of them are a little over the top, but yeah, those how to survive in nature, how to live in it. I love those kind of survival books. I think it yeah. helps in photography. Awesome. But then that's good. As a photography book, I love the Ansel Adams, the print books. Those are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? It means everything because it's, it's the true reality Everything so much has changed in these last the decade with social media. It's just that way to reconnect with really, in my mind, what's truly, truly important. And everyone, everyone has access to it. Everyone doesn't have to experience, but you have to work with the world, nature on a daily basis. And that's one of the few things you have to do in this world. And just to connect with it and to take it for how beautiful and how amazing it really is. It's just, it, it, it's everything because you have to rely on it. And nature is still the strongest thing. It's, I mean, earthquake, it's, it's still what rules everything. Yeah. And it makes you feel so small and really puts everything in perspective. Yeah. It's everything. It's, it's motivating. It's creative. It's scary. It's everything. And I just, for lack of a better answer, I just, that's just first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just, a sunrise, a half to it's just the most amazing things out there. And it's so easy to witness. And so many people just don't take advantage of it, which, I mean, for us as photographers, it's kind of a good thing because, you know, less people, the better. But that's being selfish in a way. If people just kind of learn how to live with it and take care of it more, it's the most beautiful, amazing thing. I mean, the, you go from flowers to these big, huge boulders, the trees with the bark. There's so much to it. If you just take a second to stop and look. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, a, it's an amazing, amazing wonder that it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, Shane, this has been really fun and, and exciting to talk with you about your work. And so thank you again for being on the show. Oh, and thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And we, you know, maybe we'll get you back on to talk about printing at some point. That would be fun too. Please, if your listeners do want to know more, I like we talked about, I want to get more into the groups of photography. They can contact me anytime through their website with other questions. I'd love to answer them. Oh, so nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, I understand that you are going to offer the listeners 15% off your nature book. Yeah, we, uh, we have a nature book, Miles from Los Angeles. It's just all the places within a day's drive of LA. We talked about that. It's such an amazing place, the Western United States. I just felt it special to say, hey, look, within a day's drive, you can be in these incredible mountains or you can be in this incredible desert. You can be in this incredible jungle kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's my first book. It came out a couple of years ago. And if they are interested, I think we only have about 20 hard copies left, hardcover. We have a bunch of soft cover, But I think it's, what is it, outdoor 
Outdoor 15 would be the Outdoor code. 15, yeah, it would be 15% off those books. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Of course. And they can get to you on your website at shanewalls.com. And are there any other things that you want me to include in the show notes? Um, your social media and everything. Social media. I mean, we're not the best at it. We're getting better. But yeah, YouTube, It's everything's just at Shane Walls since Shane is spelled C-H-E-Y-N-E. I was able to get all those handles. So oh, that's good. Yeah, that's convenient. Yeah, so if they just want to type in Shane Walls, no space, YouTube, website, everything will come up. Excellent. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again, Shane. It's been really great. No, thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Shane. And again, thank you, Shane, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. You can find out more about Shane's photography on his website at shanewalls.com. Again, that's C-H-E-Y-N-E walls.com. I also highly recommend checking out his YouTube channel. And if you enjoyed our conversation today or have any questions for Shane, please feel free to reach out to him on social media or through his website. And I'm sure he will look forward to connecting with you. All the links mentioned today are in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 55. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode. So if you have a question you'd like me to answer, or if you have a topic you'd like to suggest for a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in the episode description or go to outdoorphotographypodcast.com and you'll be able to record your short message there. Until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.